Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Aaron Reed. Reed is an activist, public speaker, and writer across multiple platforms, including a Substack newsletter, all of which she gathers under the title Aaron in the Morning. Reed's work centers on advocacy for the transgender community and the greater queer community. At the moment, she's undertaken the momentous task of tracking the anti-trans legislation that's being forwarded in state houses across the country and exposing its troubling, deceitful, and vicious nature. Through her newsletter, social media posts, and in-person appearances, Reed supports not only trans and queer rights, but also a vision for our communities and our country in which mutual care and kindness are our abiding values. To say it another way, Erin supports the fight against cruel anti-trans legislation currently underway, and she also connects her readers with trans girl scouts so she can help these kids with their annual cookie sale. Erin Reed, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me on. So I am so excited to be able to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to talk to you, and I think the reasons will become clearer as our, as our interview unfolds. Um, but I want to I start off by just, if you're willing, having you introduce the work that you do to our listeners, because it takes place in a lot of different locations, in, in person and across media platforms. Um, so I'm just curious how you describe what is the work you do? Um, what are you hoping to achieve? You know, you have this Aaron in the morning is sort of the, the arch over which all of this work happens. Um, what's Aaron in the morning? What's that all about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I track transgender legislation and legislation that targets the LGBTQ community at large moving around the United States. I've been doing this for, God, around three and a half years now. And what I do is essentially I research all of the bills that are moving around the country. And this year, for instance, we're at 270 bills. 
I, I read them. I, I delve really deeply into them, find the little provisions and sort of figure out what they're trying to do and who's writing them and who's submitting them. And then I, I report on them to the community at large because one thing that I feel my community has struggled with is getting the message out there and letting people know what kinds of ways my community is being targeted. And so I do this. Um, I started doing this essentially just on Twitter, writing you know little summaries of what was going on. I got a lot of followers from there. Uh, eventually, decided to reach younger followers, so I jumped onto, onto TikTok and started recording videos. But then, around three months ago, um, with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, I, I I saw that it was really important for me to cultivate my own audience and to to go a little bit deeper and longer form into longer written written work. And so I started a newsletter. Uh, it was called Aaron in the Morning. It's on Substack, and very quickly um, it it took off. It, it it blew up, and you know I've got over ten thousand subscribers now, and people are constantly telling me I, whenever I speak to legislators whenever I speak to reporters, whenever I speak to the parents of trans kids that they see my newsletter every morning and it helps them guide what they do and guide their advocacy. And for that, you know, I'm, I'm really humbled. Yeah. Um, and full disclosure, I am a, a grateful subscriber, paid subscriber um, yeah. to the to your your newsletter. And it's just so helpful to have both this larger picture that you provide and this granular detail, you know, and, and just as a reader, I can say to the listeners, you'll see, you know, Aaron will provide context um, and then will actually give us, you know, the testimony that's happening on the state house floor of any given place like Utah um, and the, the actual wording of the bills. Um, and so you, you get this sense of like, here's what's actually happening, here's what's being written, and then you do this wonderful work of, of giving us the larger state and national and even global context of, of why this matters. And for somebody that hasn't, hasn't encountered your newsletter, could you, you know, you, you were talking about what's going on, what's happening to our community. I wonder if you could if you could do sort of the, the both, the, the, the macro and the micro, like in one sense, here's what's happening um, to the transgendered community and to the queer community in general, but also then why is it so important to look at the way that, that an article is written in that larger sense of what's happening? Of course, that's a great question. And so right now in the trans community, it's kind of, we're facing this tension because on one hand, in the last four years, it feels like transgender people have finally found a way to step out into the public and exist without dealing with, you know, constant barrages of, of attacks and loss of rights mm -hmm. uh, in, in the sense that we are visible. And yet the reaction to that has been an increase in the attempt to do just that, to, to go ahead and legislate our ability to exist in the public away. I think that many people have come out in the last four years and the visibility that came as a result of that um, is now making a bunch of us targets in some ways. And so, um, you know, whenever I talk about the legislation, whenever we see, you know, bills that seek to ban our health care, whenever we see bills that seek to ban us from bathrooms, that call us danger to kids, that um, that penalize people for accommodating us. 
uh, it, it feels like, you know, an attack designed to make us go back into the closets that we came out of. And the way that I cover this in my writing and the way that I focus on this is twofold. Um, number one, I do like to provide the bills themselves so that people can see the language that in which we are targeted. Because one thing that you'll notice, especially if you're a subscriber and you, and you read the bills that I drop in there, um, a lot of this language is recycled. It's brought from state to state. And a lot of these bills are not being pushed by people that live in the states. It's being pushed by larger organizations like Focus on the Family and the Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, but secondly, one really big thing that I like to do and you just mentioned it, is provide the testimony, the video of the testimony. Because one of the biggest barriers to advocating for transgender people in your lives is is, is stepping up in front of, you know, a, a group of legislators and speaking on their behalf, because that's intimidating. A lot of people have never done anything like that. And by providing video of of people doing it effectively, of regular people, like, you know, you and me just doing it effectively, I think that that, and I've been told that that helps whenever other people need to make that choice of how do I do it? Can I do it? If they see somebody else doing it, then maybe they can see themselves on that place as well. Yeah, it, it shortens the, the imaginative range of how do I speak in front of a state house or, you know, even what does it look like to advocate to, oh, you know, you, you posted a video the other day of a father just stepping up and speaking about his transgender daughter. Um, oh God! Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, I I don't want to miss. I I some of this testimony has been so beautiful and so powerful, and and I think even if it seems a little bit backward, I would like to to hear a couple of you know a couple of the instances that stand out to you as you do this work um, because it's it's so powerful, and then maybe we can step back. And we can think of, and, and you can speak a little bit about why these kids are having to come forward and do this at all, and why these parents are having to come forward and do this at all. But I, I don't, I don't want to foreground these legislators. I want to foreground these kids and these families and these young people who are just fighting for their very ability to exist. Um, could you maybe Absolutely. talk about a little bit of what you're seeing there? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that having watched hundreds of hours of testimony, the testimony that I always like to highlight are the transgender people themselves and are the transgender kids themselves and are the families of the transgender kids themselves. Because I feel like there is, whenever we see this debate raging across the country, now we've got presidential candidates that are talking about it. It, it can be very easy to detach the words and the rhetoric and the language from the people that they affect. And whenever these decisions are made, I think that transgender people need to be in the room and centered. And so one thing that I, I've done is I've, I've recorded all of the instances, for instance, whenever trans kids are testifying or the families of trans kids are testifying. And I do want to be upfront by saying, I don't think that trans kids sh should have to testify for their right to exist. And yet, to the ones that do, to the ones that feel so moved to do that, and to the ones that show that bravery, they have been some of the most effective advocates. I'll give you a really good example. Um, in Missouri, you know, they were hearing a, a ban on gender affirming care. They were going to withdraw 
transgender youth from their uh, from their puberty blockers and hormone therapy, and you know this is this is very damaging for for these kids. They they've essentially been told that they would be allowed to grow up as their gender, and then they get pulled from it. It's it's very traumatizing. But there was this one um, this one son, this one trans boy. Uh, 11 years old and his family sat down on the stand with him and he gave such an impassioned plea about how he just wants to exist. He wants to play sports with his friends. He wants to be with his friends and, and be seen as who he is and, and begged them to stop attacking him and just show that he was a normal boy. And then the next person that came up because they were doing people who were for and against an alternate, the next person who came up, who came up to support the bill that would target that kid, fumbled through her entire speech and at the end said, yeah, this is government overreach. I don't know why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And it was such a powerful moment. And it was like, you know, that, that was what I wanted to capture. And that's why I do this. That's why I record all of this is to see those moments where like you see somebody come across and you see somebody, the light turn on in somebody's head. And I don't know what that woman is going to do in the future. I don't know if she's going to have her mind permanently changed or not, but that's something. Yeah. I think, you know, this is so obvious and yet it gets overlooked in in these processes is is just real human beings it is a it is a very very hard thing to target bully and attack real human beings which is why so much of this anti-trans legislation attempts to dehumanize humans and so to suddenly have them sitting in front of you and saying you're about to do this to me um I think that that it's it's so brave for these kids and their families to step up to do that, and you suddenly realize uh-huh. that this is these are people and we are people, and this is not a political debate. This is about the right for human beings to exist as who they are. Exactly, and you know the the, the dehumanization part. I'm glad that you mentioned that because like I've seen dehumanization among the legislators. I've seen transgender people referred to as viruses and as, you know, infecting the community and all of these terms. And and yet, whenever you have somebody like this 11-year-old trans boy that is just sitting there like, hey, I just want to play football or, hey, I just want to, like, be with my friends, it's it's that rhetoric doesn't match reality. And I think that that cognitive dissonance that forms as a result of that kind of rhetoric clashing with what what is in front of you, I think that that helps. And so, yeah, I, I do like to capture those moments um, through video, through TikTok, through writing, through my, my articles. And I hope that like, I hope that as time goes on, because we're in the legislative session right now for the next five months or so, I hope that as time goes on, we have more of those moments because they do help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish we did not have the need for them, as you have said, and I'm grateful for the people who offer them because we do need them. Um, so somebody that might be listening that isn't as familiar with what's happening, um, I'm thinking about these kids again, and I'm thinking about gender-affirming care. And I was just wondering if you'd be able to offer to someone who's perhaps only heard that term. Like when we're thinking about children or we're th- or thinking about young people who are at the start um, of their gender journey, what is gender affirming care and, and why is it so necessary and helpful? 
And then also, what isn't it? What isn't it? Because I think one of the ways that this legislation works is through lies. Um, of course. Yeah. And it, in fact, you know, as you've shown, and, and I think other trans activists have shown, it's actually built on lies and the exclusion of truth. Um, so just like, hey, gender affirming care, you know, why do we need this? What is it helpful? What is it? Um, would you be willing to do that for us so that we know, like, what is it these kids are actually just asking for? Of course, of course. So gender affirming care is this broad variety of care that is given to transgender people to improve their lives and allow them to express themselves and form a concordance between the body and mind because gender dysphoria, which is the thing that transgender people often experience, it's a mismatch between the way that you see yourself and the way that you innately feel yourself to be and what your body is doing. And so gender affirming care can, can be so many things. Um, for, for young people, for people that are younger than 12, gender affirming care is merely a haircut, pronouns, changing your clothes. Um, and, and, you know, we often see, you know, like a, a nine-year-old who, you know, feels very confident and has been asserting their gender identity for a long time, um, a nine-year-old trans girl, uh, assigned male at birth, now presents as a girl and has likely been presenting as a girl for a while. A gender affirming care for her is likely just going to be, hey, we, you're, you're, we're going to let you grow your hair out. You know, you can use a new name. Um, we can use she, her pronouns, and, and that's it. You go to school, you're happy. I know many parents of transgender, uh, trans transgender youth, 9, 10, 11 years old, that that's what it consists of. Once you start getting into the your teenage years, um, puberty begins and they do allow like, I'm yeah, very, go ahead. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but that's so important that I just want to just underscore it again, right? A haircut, mm -hmm. a change of clothes, you know, a different set of pronouns. My child has um, fellow fellow children who are seven and eight who are, are doing this as well, right? Like that's it. Mm -hmm. um, and so please Absolutely. continue, and right? But gender affirming care, it's, it's allowing a kid to explore and be who they are in these very low stakes and compassionate ways that the kids, at least in the, the ones I've seen, transform and flower. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you mentioned transform and flower because the, the, the universal story that the parents of trans get that the parents of trans kids tend to have is that they see their kid at six, seven, eight years old, experiencing extreme depression, like things that you shouldn't see a six year old experience, mm -hmm. you know, a lack of wanting to get out of bed in the morning as a six year old, as a seven year old, because of the pain that they feel due to their gender identity never being respected and due to you know they them knowing who they are and yet all of the adults in the world not allowing them to be that and then you always hear that like the moment that the parents start to allow them to present that way and start to give them the pronoun and the names you always hear about how these kids just suddenly flourish how like they they blossom into these active happy smiling playful kids and 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 that's why we do this that's why that's why this is done that's why we allow you know kids to express their gender identities in all kinds of ways and i, I really think that like that point is is really important yeah yeah that any parent would want their child to flourish i mean that's that's the hope of being a parent 
And this is a way to do that. This is a way to love. Absolutely. And, and, you know, so, so then what will usually happen is as they get older and they start to go through puberty, a lot of these kids have been experiencing their gender identity for a long time. Um, they put them on puberty blockers, which are a reversible form of delaying puberty. They've been used for decades in children, for instance, that have precocious puberty, which means that they went through an early puberty. Um, and this essentially buys them a little bit more time through their teenage years uh, to say, okay, You've lived as your gender. You, you're not going to go through the, through this puberty yet. Let's make sure that you are well taken care of. And they usually have very big care teams. Um, most of the parents that I speak to, their kids had care teams of um, of a psychologist, of a doctor, a medical doctor, an endocrinologist, or a hormone therapy doctor. Um, and they've they've met many physicians by the time they get to the point. And then sometime at around 14 to 16 years old, uh, they'll begin hormone therapy treatments, which will allow them to essentially enter the puberty of the gender that they've assigned or that they've identified as for a long time. These kids, I've known people that have transitioned during their teenage years. They've grown up now and they are some of the happiest people that I've ever met. They are, they managed to avoid a large amount of trauma that's involved in experiencing a puberty that you don't belong to as your as your gender identity. And many of these people have turned out to be, you know, big time activists for, for the cause because of the benefits that it gave them. On top of that, um, on top of that, they get, whenever you do this, you get to avoid very costly and painful procedures that you would otherwise have to do later in life. So for instance, I did not get to tra- to, to gender, um, um, to transition as a kid. I was a transgender child and I very much, um, you know, lived that, but I, I wasn't able to transition as a kid because of an accepting family. And, you know, having gone through my teenage years, I could have saved myself a lot of pain, a lot of damage. I, I had panic attacks for 16 years of my life after, after puberty and, um, no, nobody could solve them. And then the day that I started hormone therapy, they, I haven't had a panic attack in four years. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that like, that experience is so common among transgender people that have been forced to go through this, that haven't been able to, to transition uh, during their teenage years. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. Of course. Yeah. I feel that. I feel it in my heart. Um, can Let's loop back. I mean, you you had shared how difficult it was for you not to have this opportunity to transition. Um, we we know this not just from the stories like the ones you were kind enough to share, but organizations like the the Trevor Project have data that what happens to to transgender children when they're denied mm-hmm. gender affirming care is that depression rates go up, suicide rates go up, um, that the things go very badly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a single transgender person who, who, who does not know somebody who has lost their life due to suicide because of a result of their gender identity not being respected or because of not being able to transition. I, I've been sadly, um, you know, very used to this. And I've, I've seen many, many examples of this in, in all of the scientific literature, 
the one thing that everybody agrees on, even people that, you know, are, are testifying against our care is that transgender people do have a high risk of suicide, a very high risk of suicide. Now the medical research shows that 40% of transgender people will attempt to take their lives. And that is one of the highest numbers of any cohort of people that are out there, any category, any grouping that you can make mm -hmm. of human beings. Transgender people have one of the highest suicide rates. But, the, but the, the flip side of that is that there has been so much research that shows that the mere act of of allowing a gender affirming uh, of allowing a transgender person to obtain gender affirming care and the mere act of respecting the identity drops the suicide rates dramatically um there was a study for instance that recently came out in pediatrics last year uh, that showed a 73% reduction in suicide rates and if you think about the number of trans kids that are out there and the number of transgender people that are out there a 73% reduction that's saving tens of thousands of lives. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is essential care for a lot of people. And, um, and I think that like, it's important to highlight that, that this is, this is why this care has been deemed even by insurance companies as medically necessary. It's because the evidence is so strong out there. Yes. Yes. If we were in the transcript for this, I would be underlining essential, right? This is, this yeah. is medically necessary. This is life-saving. Um, and then when you add on it to just, you know, the human well-being that comes with being able to be who you are, well, then it's immeasurable. Um, I, exactly. I did, I did want to look back to, or, or loop back to, you know, you, you had mentioned um, when, when somebody who's transgender, you know, reaches their teenage years, they have a care team. And I would, I would like to to dispel once again another set of lies that is out there and circulating, um, which is, you know, you bring this up quite often, like every major medical association in the country and I think in the world, right, is thoroughly behind gender affirming care. I, could you speak to that? Like the actual scientific experts and doctors um, where are they on gender affirming care? Just so we know. Absolutely. So the Trans Health Project at um, uh, TLDEF, the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, um, has a list of all of the medical organization statements. And this includes statements from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Nursing, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Medical Association, uh, the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, the American Psychological Association, um, the Endocrine Society. Uh, this is literally, you can go down the list. There's, there's you know, dozens of, of these medical organizations that have released statements. And in fact, one of the things that I'm seeing in a lot of the um, legislative debate this year, whenever these bills are being targeted towards the community, is these organizations aren't just passively supporting it. They are sending representatives of their organizations to say, hey, look, you can't ban this care. This is important. And we as a medical organization are united around in ensuring that this care is accessible. And so, um, yeah, I think that there is a strong, um, there, there is a strong sense that the medical community is behind this and that's because the evidence is there. Yes. It's fact-based. It's evidence-based. It's 
you know, supported by research studies um, and by human experience. And I think what I, I was hoping to land for our listeners is that w what you hear in this anti-trans legislation is often, you know, th these legislators will trot out a doctor or someone who seems medical-ish, but they are not mm -hmm. representative of the same people that we go to for our care for anything else. They are, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, eccentric to say the least. Yeah, and and you know, I I do want to highlight that the fact that um, again, transgender people, especially trans youth, often have large care teams, and and they've spoken to their care teams on a regular basis. And I think that like one of the rhetorical sort of techniques that I've seen from people that are trying to ban gender affirming care. Um, is that these are just decisions that are made on a whim that like somebody wakes up and they put on a dress a, a boy quote unquote wakes up and puts on a dress and then the parent rushes the kid to the doctor where they're like let's go ahead and do the surgery like that's not how any of this works and and the parents of trans youth whenever they hear this they you know they would have to laugh if it weren't so serious if their rights weren't being targeted and and it's it's because all of these these families, they know all of the hoops that they have to jump through with their trans kids. And, and there are many hoops that they have to jump through, legal, medical, psychological, dealing with schools, dealing with systems. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of things that are involved in this. And so, no, these, these decisions are not made willy-nilly. And yet, on the other side, whenever we do see um, these legislative debates, it really is. They, they do pull out random doctors that are seemingly um, that are that are seemingly just like not practiced and that don't even associate with the medical organizations to somehow justify what they're doing. And and so you know you have like these organizations like the American uh, College of Pediatrics, uh, American College of Pediatrics, which is a right wing organization meant to confuse people with the. American Academy of Pediatrics. And so, yeah, this is, this is fairly common. Yeah. Yeah. It's intentionally obfuscating. And, and I think one of the things that I've noticed through your work is that often the very legislators who are bringing forth the, the anti-trans legislation, they don't understand what's in it. Some, some of them don't even seem to have read it. Um, and I wonder if here might be a moment where you could speak to what you mentioned before, that there are these organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom um, that that are are in some ways behind this, like drafting the bills, right? And so what seems like, oh, there are all these different states all concerned, you know, and all these legislators I think the actual situation is something much more like there are one or two organizations that are highly anti-trans and have been, in some cases, can't categorized as hate organizations feeding legislators documents. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. So I've been tracking these organizations for a long time now. Um, back in 2018, 2017, 2018, um, the American Principles Project and the Alliance Defending Freedom, they began their uh, targeting towards transgender people in sports. And we have information uh, and quotes from them stating that the reason why they focused on transgender people in sports is because they felt like that was the easiest 
you know, sort of like gateway law that they could quote that they could that they could use to introduce people to the idea of passing legislation against transgender people. But they've stated that this was never their end goal; that their end goal was to eliminate gender affirming care um, for for essentially all all transgender people, uh, trans youth, trans adults, and all. And so, what what you see is these bills that are moving around the country. You'll notice that. Um, they're, they tend to be carbon copies of each other. And, you know, I, I get a lot of questions like, Aaron, how can you, how can you possibly read 270 bills that are, that are out there? How could you have read them all? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer to that for me is that I, I haven't, I've read 10 bills and maybe a few variations of those 10 bills. I know exactly where to go to see where those variations are. And so, um, You'll you'll notice that whenever these bills are introduced in in these states, I I'll give you a good example. Um, I recently just watched the Montana hearing where they are introducing such a bill, and in Montana, there were um, I think ninety people that spoke out against the bill. All of them were from within the state, from the state's largest hospital organizations, from the state's largest medical organizations, from the parents, from all of those people, and then the people that spoke out that spoke out in favor of the bill um, were were people that you see fly from state to state testifying. So you had people like the like um, like uh, Walt Heyer, you had people from the Alliance Defending Freedom that that will travel from California to Montana to Florida. They're the ones that are writing these laws and they've they've got their whole sort of dog and pony show set up um, essentially to target the trans community. And so yeah, they're these aren't these aren't like one thing that I think you'll hear from a lot of trans people is that well, most of us feel like we are loved in our communities and that like we have friends we have a lot of us live lives without um, without like people constantly um, focusing on on attacking us and yet and we get a lot of support from the communities and yet the people that are trying to legislate our existence away. They're not coming from within our communities. They're not coming from a grassroots support in these states. They're they're being flown around for ideological purposes. Yeah, they're political operatives. Absolutely, absolutely. I, they they admit as much, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, as someone who's following your work, I know the gravity of what's happening. Um, and and you're just this tireless advocate for for showing us how it's happening. Um, but I'm wondering if, if for somebody who's listening who might be like, well, you know, as a human being, I find that this sounds horrible. You know that that these kids should be able to have care, that people should be able to to be who they are, that we should support our fellow citizens and our our families and the people that are in them. Um, Right, like the kind of legislation that's taking place when you say to legislate people out of existence, um, you and you know, Ali, is it Alejandro Caraballo? Alejandro? Yeah, yeah, right. You've shown that that it's nothing less really than genocide. That that's what's happening, and so so there might be somebody who's listening that says, "Whoa, Lemay, that that seems extreme." Mm-hmm. Like, right? Is it? Okay, so yeah, this is this is such an interesting topic to talk about because I feel like whenever people mention the word genocide, um, it brings to mind the, the very worst examples of that that have occurred within human history, and and it should those those are the 
in, in, in historical context, those are the, the end results of some of the worst targeting of oppressed peoples. But genocide in and of itself is not just those events. Genocide, and, and you can look up the UN definition of genocide and like just how it's, how it's treated internationally. Um, the goal of genocide is, is the elimination of, of, of groups, of populations. And, and there are several ways that this is done. Sometimes it's done by reducing healthcare access. Sometimes it's done by culturally um, trying to stamp out a culture. Sometimes it's done by um, taking kids away. Uh, all, all of these things. And, and so whenever we look at what is occurring within the trans community, we are seeing kids getting threatened with being taken away. Tennessee's HB1, SB1, this bill right now that's moving through Tennessee would do just that. It would take kids from their parents. Um, same in, in Texas with Greg Abbott, who has been investigating the parents of trans youth for child, for child abuse. Uh, we are seeing an, an end of access to health care. Uh, you know, we have 22 bills right now that are promoting removing gender-affirming care from, from all uh, trans youth, and even some of them that are targeting trans adults, we are seeing a reduction in the ability to participate in public life. And and one final point that I would make is that you know I live in I live in the Washington D.C. area. Um, we've got an amazing Holocaust museum, and whenever you wander those halls and you read about what happened. The big message, and like the, the museum constantly presents this message to you, is that it this does not just happen. It doesn't just one day a light switch comes on and it happens. It's a process. And it's something that the only way you can defeat and stamp out is by stamping it out early, in its earliest stages, anywhere where it rears its head. And so, yeah, right now we may not be at the point where transgender people are being split up and thrown into camps. Uh, but we are at the point where transgender kids are potentially about to get taken from their parents. We are at the point where transgender people are having their health care removed. And mm -hmm. so and so I think that keeping that in mind, it's important to to attack that before it becomes something that we can't that we can't end. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. and and we're hearing presidential candidates start to stoke that kind of action and that kind of hate um and so i i, I just want to like lay a, a situation out there for the listener so that they can say am i hearing this right and i can and and you can say whether or not uh, indeed they are hearing this right that if you are the parent of a trans child in say texas or tennessee and you are caring and loving for that child in part by giving them the gender-affirming care that scientists, doctors, and medical professions say is the best thing that you can do for that child, you are at risk of having your child taken from you and being put in prison and are currently in a situation where you might be having to ask yourself, do I have to leave this state? And even then, if I do, for the good of my child and my family, can I be brought back and put under charges? Yeah, yeah. And this isn't this isn't even rhetorical or hypothetical. This this is something that is happening. People are leaving these states. Um, Texas, one of the biggest advocates for transgender youth, the Shapley family, uh, Kai Shapley, in two thousand and one, she's she's a little trans girl. 
Um, she sat in front of the Texas legislature that was about to vote to make gender affirming care child abuse. And she said, um, she, she talked about her love of Dolly Parton and about her, her cats and about how she was just a normal girl. And she wished that these legislators would just leave her alone. And you know what? It was one of the most powerful pieces of testimony. And the Texas legislature did not um, pass that bill that year. Uh, things deteriorated since then. You know, whenever Greg Abbott started investigating families, Kai and her family, they had to, they had to leave. They mm. ran. They, they moved. They moved far away from Texas. And I've spoken personally to many families that have done the same ever since the child abuse stuff started going on in Texas. And now whenever we're seeing states begin to try to codify that into law uh, with, with Tennessee, with Texas is attempting to codify it into law or with, with uh, Wyoming is one that I'm following as well right now, people are basically going to be faced with that decision. Do I stay and take my kid off of this care and watch as they deteriorate? Or do I try to run? Do I try to flee? Can I flee? Can I run? There are so many families that are going to be trapped there. And so, you know, like even that isn't a decision that a lot of families get to make. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that like the pain and the fear is so high in those places. And this is, this is a big reason why, why I do all the writing I do and all the reporting I, that I do, because I don't think that they should have to live in fear and in pain without hearing from from every from, from everybody experiencing this, like I think that the world should have to see what's going on, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that I can continue to do that. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm deeply grateful that you're casting a light on what would otherwise. I mean, the people that are doing this are trying to do it literally sometimes under the cover of darkness and night. They're trying to, there are often bills that sneak things in. There are often legislative meetings that happen late into the night in which this this anti-trans legislation can get brought in because the communities don't want it. Yeah, I, you know, it's, I've seen, I've seen examples of hearings that were announced with only a few hours notice. Um, you know, there was, I think, uh, there was a recent hearing in, in Montana that was announced with like three hours notice. And we had to really quickly blast to all of my followers and to all of, um, representative Zephyr's followers. She's the trans legislator in Montana. Um, we had to blast, Hey, look, this is going on. We need, we need people to testify right now. We managed to to scrape up enough people to testify, but like, we see these bills put on calendars with very little notice. Um, in fact, this in Tennessee, this this bill that I that we've been talking about that would remove the um, that would remove trans kids from their parents. That amendment was not announced on the website. Usually, they announce these amendments on the website. They held that amendment until the session began. The only reason why um, why we even knew what was about to happen is because it got leaked. And so, you know, I was able to report it. I, I threw it on my on my newsletter on my Substack, um, and and people realized, like, hey, look, this is this is what's about to happen in Tennessee. And so, yeah, they do try underhanded tactics. I've seen I've seen some of these meetings go on until four in the morning. I, I watched Ohio's meeting that went on until four in the morning, and yeah, yeah, they go late into the night. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I, I am mindful of our time and I am deeply grateful for your sharing of your expertise and, and your experience and your own story. And I want to end on a note that 
your work centers on, which is about activism and doing. And so if, if someone is listening right now and is having a, oh my God, kind of reaction, where, where would you direct them? Uh, you know, we're absolutely going to link to your, your Substack, which is a clearinghouse for being able to reach other organizations as well. Um, but I want to have a chance to, you know, Aaron, what should we do, says someone, because a lot of people come to you over and over again and say, Aaron, what should I do? I see that in your comments all the time. Yeah, I get that. I get that a lot. And I, you know, there, there are a number of things that I always say as a response to this. Number one, get to know your local LGBT orgs and start doing the work in your own backyard. Because I can tell you that even if you're listening and you're, and you live in a state like, like Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, places that like are typically not seen as the places where these attacks are happening. There is not a place in this country that is perfect on transgender legislation. The transpanic defense is still legal in Massachusetts, for instance. This is a defense where somebody can kill a transgender person if they didn't know their gender identity and they had a romantic relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And, and and this has been used successfully. And so like this, this is still legal. In, in, in Massachusetts, there are still several states where it's hard to change your birth certificate, where it's hard to change your, your driver's license. There are still several states that don't have modern healthcare coverage for transgender procedures. And so the, the local organizations are going to know what the fights are in your own home state. Another thing that I'll mention is that try to try to use your professional advocacy and everybody has their own skills that they bring into the world. You know, there are graphic designers, there are artists, there are lawyers, there are teachers, and doing the advocacy within your own profession is so, so, so important because the, these issues are not just located to political bodies and states. They stretch or they stretch around legal bodies, around professional societies, around, um, around your place of work and how your place of work handles transgender people. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of good that can be done. And, and the other thing that I would also say is that, and this is this is less of a, what do you do to fight things, you know, legally, and what do you do to fight things politically, but also what do you do to like find the mindset required in order to be a good advocate? And and one thing that I will mention is that media representation of transgender people is is very it's 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 very rough and and problematic in the past and and a lot of people don't understand the way that their media diets carry into their daily lives i would actually recommend a documentary called disclosure um disclosure documentary and anybody can look it up i believe it's even on netflix um and and that documentary essentially goes into the history of transgender representation in media versus like the people that are doing the work today. Include transgender people in your media diet, include them in your social media, include them in in the content you read. Like all of this is so important because once you start to not just hear from transgender people, but listen to them and understand them and 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 make an effort to engage in the content, I think that's whenever people can become the best allies. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the New Books Network. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Aaron Reed, activist, public speaker, social media presence, 
and writer of the Substack newsletter, Aaron in the Morning, here on the New Books Network.